And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Steve Jobs, the late innovator behind Apple uh, and the, the explosion of Apple into a multi-billion dollar business, uh, said this, hardly anyone believed that average people might have any use for personal computers. They were huge lumbering devices that performed massive number crunching exercises for big businesses or big government. Now that was a long time ago, but there was a time where that was the thought. And yet the reality is every one of you walk in this morning and all day long and all week long with a personal computer on you. We call them smartphones, but they are a personal computer uh, that do far more than the lumbering devices did decades ago. And Steve Jobs, was a, he was a visionary. Right? He, he, he saw what other people couldn't see. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, who is Hall of Fame hockey player, uh, he once said this, and this would explain why he was such a good hockey player. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where, not where it's been. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. Of course, that made him the great that he was. He was able to see what other hockey players were unable to see. Jesus writes a letter to the church in Laodicea who has lost its sight. They've lost the ability to see. In fact, verse 17, Jesus is pretty blunt. He says, you're blind. And then verse 18, he says, you need salve, ointment, right, to, to heal your eyes so that you can see. He says, you're, you're not seeing beyond what your physical eye can see. That, that's the, the, the critique he's laying on this church in Laodicea, that they're spiritually blind, that they're not seeing beyond what their physical eye is seeing, and we're gonna explore that. So what exactly did Jesus want them to see? That's the question. He says you're blind and you need to see. What, what does he want them to see and what does he want you to see? You know, we've not necessarily made mention of it every Sunday, but what's 
really powerful about these letters is these are written by Jesus. These are his words to you. He is speaking to you this morning. And he says, I want you to see. And you say, I can see. I'm looking at the man up front speaking now. I look next to me, I see people. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We're talking about something beyond physical sight. This is the last letter of our series on the church being light in the darkness. And this is one of the primary ways that the church functions as light in the darkness. That ability to see beyond what the physical eye can see. So what does Jesus want you to see this morning? First, he wants you to see your poverty. He wants you to see your poverty. Verse 15, he says to these people, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. (laughs) Okay, anytime Jesus says I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth, probably we should take note. Might be a good idea, okay? I I don't wanna be spit out. Okay, so Jesus, what do you mean by that? Well, to understand that, we have to understand what he means by, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. One of the two. Now, this hot water, cold water, and lukewarm water was very much relevant to this church and the region that surrounded it. In fact, there was an area near Laodicea, called Heropolis, that had hot springs where there was hot, boiling-type water that would come out, and they used it for medical reasons. It would be used to bring healing. They also had around Laodicea an area called Colossae, which had cold springs, and it was pure, kind of spring water, and it was was drinkable, and it was was life-giving. And so what Jesus is saying... (laughs) is I want you to be one of those two, not lukewarm. See, the reality is Laodicea tried to pipe in some of this water, the cold water, the hot water, and guess what? By the time it got there, it was lukewarm. It wasn't very palatable. Laodicea was known for its big commerce, but it was not known for its water. It was was not palatable, it was nauseating, and so here's what Jesus is saying. Just like Laodicea, your lukewarm water is nauseating, and not very helpful, so too I know your works, he says, and they're nauseating. Ah, okay, what was nauseating about their works? What was nauseating about their works? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, big difference in their self-assessment and Jesus' assessment, big gap there, right? They said, we're rich, we're prospering, we're fine. And Jesus says, no, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. Couldn't be the extreme opposites of assessment. They thought they were okay, but they, they weren't. They couldn't see their poverty. It's very possible that they had connected their wealth, their prosperity, their success to their spiritual health. In other words, that they looked at their life, wealthy, prosperous, successful, and saw that as evidence that they were spiritually okay. In fact, maybe even a step further, that God was blessing them. It was evidence of them being blessed. 
And, and the reason this connection is made is that the wording here is very similar to the wording in Hosea 12, 8. In fact, many think that it's a direct allusion to that. Hosea 12, 8 says this, Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Right? And that was Israel making this connection between wealth and success with we must be doing really well spiritually. And so they couldn't see their poverty. The problem was that their wealth, in this situation, we've talked about it this whole series, their wealth was coming from compromise with the world, specifically with Rome and with the system that was going on there. And so they were compromising, they were enjoying success, and then that compromise was going under the radar and they were assessing themselves as spiritually doing really well. And this is where the problem lies, is that they were evaluating their spiritual health on the wrong standards and values. That they had attached their spiritual health to worldly standards and values. Now, I would imagine in this room that, that a vast majority of you would not be able to necessarily connect with that, that you wouldn't make the, the logistical jump from, wow, I'm doing really well according to the world. I'm successful, maybe wealthy, I'm prospering, therefore, I must be doing spiritually great. Probably that's not the connection that would happen in this room. What more it probably falls under is this, that your worldly comfort, that your worldly success blinds you to your true spiritual condition, that that's what tends to happen, is that we enjoy success and we enjoy comfort, we enjoy prosperity, and it blinds us. It puts the blinders on to our true spiritual condition. Consider the, um, for those of you that live in Mandarin or you maybe hit this stretch of 295 uh, where they're expanding 295 between I-95 and the St. John's River in Mandarin, Hey, some of you make that trek. I make it about once a week, and it is a mess, absolute mess as they're expanding 295. And, and, and I, I drive through there, and I wonder, when in the world are they just gonna pave the road and widen the highway? They're spending all this time on the sound barriers, which is good for the neighbors, uh, but on the foundation of the road, they're trucking dirt out, trucking dirt in, building the foundation, and, and you go, when are they gonna lay the pavement? It's taking forever. And the reality is, is that the foundation is absolutely critical to this highway. And so they just recently did lay some pavement. And at one point, they're gonna lay the pavement and it's gonna look like this beautiful, beautiful, shiny, new highway. And every couple years or so often, they'll pave it again. If all they do is repave this highway and never give attention to the foundation underneath. If the foundation is eroding or a sinkhole is developing, they can pave it all they want and it can look beautiful and yet underneath it's eroding. There is nothing wrong with wealth. There is nothing wrong with success. There is nothing wrong with comfort in and of itself. The problem 
is when you begin to attach those things to the world and not to the grace of God, that you spiritually begin to erode, that the foundation is forgotten. Let me give you an example of this. I'm gonna use a, a job promotion as an example, but you can, whatever your context is, insert any success or any accolade in there, okay? The first time you get a job promotion, you thank God, you, you give him all the credit, you believe it's a gift from him, you give him the glory, wow, God, thank you for that promotion. Then the second promotion comes along, and you, you thank God, but then you begin to attribute the promotion to your savvy way that you crafted the budget, or that you trimmed the budget, or that you did this or that. Then the third promotion comes along, and by the third promotion, you, you don't even recognize or thank God, and you attribute it fully to your managerial prowess, uh, crafting the budget well, people skills. You, you, you begin to believe the press clippings, right, from your boss who's giving you this promotion. You see what happens with, with success and prosperity? There's nothing wrong with them, but when you fail to understand that God is the one who gives that, and you start to connect it to the world and not to the grace of God, you start to erode spiritually, and you become blind to your true spiritual condition because you're attaching it to the world. Materially rich, spiritually poor. That was the condition of this church. And so Jesus says, listen, I want you to see your poverty. And there may be a lot of success and comfort and prosperity that is masking it for you. But I want you to see your poverty. And then he wants us to see beyond poverty what true spiritual wealth is. What is wealth then, right? The Laodiceans said, I'm rich. Jesus says, no, you're poor. But I want you to be rich. So what is spiritual wealth? Well, verse 18, he's gonna define true wealth. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, first of all, what does it mean when Jesus says, I want you to buy? Okay, let's just set the table clear here. He is not talking about buying your salvation. Okay? This is not what he's speaking about. This is coming straight out of Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here's what Jesus is saying. And he's using the word buy because he understands that this is a city full of commerce and these are people who have engaged in that commerce and, and reaped some success with it. He uses the word buy because this is what he's saying. I want you to stop doing business with the world to gain your success and your security and your identity, and I want you to start doing business with me to find your identity and your security and ultimately your wealth. Because in me, Jesus says, you're gonna find what true wealth is. Now, what is that spiritual wealth? He, he asks them, or he counsels them to buy three things. Gold refined by fire, white garments, and salve for the eyes. 
So what's the gold refined by fire? What is Jesus referring to there? Well, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, says this. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So Peter's saying there that, that our faith or our trust, our core trust in Jesus is like gold, even more precious than gold. I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, come buy from me or come find in me your trust. You realize every person in this room has a core trust. That you're, you're trusting something, right? We're, we are created as trusters, we, worshipers. We put our trust in something. Everyone has a core trust. Could be a relationship, could be a job, could be a career, could be your mothering skills, could be money, could be power, whatever. You have a core trust. And Jesus is saying to you, to these people, Come find in me your core trust, faith. Trust in me. That that would become wealth for you above and beyond anything else. And so it begs the question for us. Is your trust in Jesus, is your faith of wealth to you? Or are there other things that rise to the top of what it means for you to be wealthy. This has huge implications for how you raise children. You realize that the way that you raise your children is building out a framework for how your children are gonna define success. That's the question we're getting at. What is success? What is wealth? That the way that you raise your children is gonna answer that question for them. How do you measure success with your children? Is it musician, athlete, college grad, good job, spouse, family, nice house, and consistent church attendance? Is that how we would define success for a child? Or is the definition of success for a child a dynamic, unwavering trust in Jesus Christ? With all the stuff around that, circumstances, achievements, job, college, all of that, attached to that core trust. You see, those are two vastly different ways to raise a child. And Jesus is saying, your core trust, your your faith in me is like gold. In fact, no, it's more precious than gold. That everything should revolve around that core. That's what it means to be spiritually wealthy, to be rich. Second, Jesus counsels them to buy white garments to clothe the shame of their nakedness. He says, you need white garments to clothe the shame of your nakedness. What is so noteworthy here is that they don't see their nakedness. They don't realize they're naked. And you say, well, why is that? It's because the the wealth and the success and the prosperity that they enjoyed were serving as masks to cover their insecurity, and to cover their shame. You know, every person in this room, let me just say it so everybody can be at ease, okay? 
Everybody in this room is vastly insecure, including me. Now, how do we know that? You go back to the very beginning of human history, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled from God and they said, God, we don't need you, we can live our own life. When they rebelled from God, what was the first thing that they did? Well, they recognized they were naked. And then what do they start doing? They start ripping leaves off trees. They're just ripping leaves off and trying to cover themselves. It was a cheap, inexpensive way to try to cover their shame. And it didn't work. And so what did God do? What did God do? He killed an animal. He sacrificed an animal. It was the first time that death had ever come into his world. He sacrifices the animal, he makes animal skins, and he covers them. It was an expensive covering, and it was pointing forward to the day when he would sacrifice not an animal, but his son, Jesus Christ. And the blood would flow from his son so that you would find by trusting in Christ your righteousness in him, and that you would have that covering, an expensive covering. You see, every one of us, there's a tendency to look to something in this world that our physical eyes can see to cover our insecurity and our shame. It might be that you, you look at uh, the, the pretty girl in your class and you think to yourself, if I could just have her looks and her body, I would be secure and comfortable in my skin. Or you may look at the, the athlete in your class and say, man, if I had the build that he had, and if I had the athletic skill that he had, and therefore the popularity that he enjoys, then I could be secure and comfortable in my own skin. Or you might say, if I only had the mothering skills of that mother who has 15 children and never gets stressed, then I would be comfortable in my own skin and secure. Or maybe as a businessman, you look at that, when you go to those business conferences and you look at that man who has just multiplied three businesses and super entrepreneur and he's the businessman of all businessmen and you look at him and you say, man, if I could just have his skills, I would be secure and comfortable in my own skin. Here's the problem. The very people that you look to as the solution for your insecurity are as, as insecure or more insecure than you because that's what we do. We put the success, we put the prosperity, we put the mask on that, that at least delivers a message that I'm secure. I don't have insecurity, I don't have shame, and every one of us do. And that's where, that's where Jesus says, listen, that success, I am rich, I am prosperous, I don't need anything, is just a, it's a mask that does not cover the deep shame, and the deep insecurity. And Jesus says, you are insecure. <laughs> he calls it like it is. You're insecure, you're shameful, and you're ripping leaves off trees, trying to cover it up. I bled for you. I poured my blood out. Let me cover you. It's an expensive covering that will work. Find your security in me, Jesus says. Find your security in me. And then both of these aspects of wealth, so security and faith, or your core trust, right? Both of these aspects of wealth find their completion 
in communion with Jesus. He says in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This, this is an invitation by Jesus himself to you for deep, rich communion and fellowship with him. In fact, the imagery that he uses here is, is of a husband who is knocking on the bedroom door, encouraging his wife to renew her love for him and to let him enter in. And here is Jesus, the bridegroom, knocking on the door of the bride, the church, saying, I want communion with you. I want fellowship with you. He comes to you and says, I want to eat with you. I want to eat a meal with you. You know, there's a number of agencies, organizations that have made the observation I'm going to tell you. This one actually comes from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse out of Columbia University. But what I'm gonna tell you is not, it, there's plenty of research that's been done. But listen to what they say. Children who eat at least five times a week with their family are at lower risk of developing poor eating habits, weight problems, or alcohol and substance dependencies, and tend to perform better academically than their peers who frequently eat alone or away from home. Now, you say, it's true. I mean, that's not the only people that have figured this out. That when, when children, especially young children, right, eat together with their family, you know, at least five days a week or most of the week, that we see less of what I just described. You say, what's going on there? Is it because it's a good home-cooked meal? Is it? <laughs> no. It's that these children are finding their security through their parents, who God has set parents up to be his representatives, his, his fatherly love over children. And so when they are with their parents eating a meal and, and, and building a relationship, they find their security through their parents, ultimately, therefore, God, and they're not out trying to find their security elsewhere. That's, that's why. Jesus says, I want to dine with you. I want to eat a meal with you, and not just once a week. I want to eat with you on a regular basis so that you find your security in me and don't go hunting out in the world to find it because it's not going to deliver. To those I love, Jesus says, I love this verse in the letter. This isn't Jesus coming down with condemnation and judgment. Oh, it's discipline, but he says, to those I love, I reprove in discipline. He's saying, I love you. That's why I deliver this kind of message to you, because I know that you will not find your security anywhere else except in me. Only I can cover your shame. I want you to imagine that you're single, and you're unable to fly home for Thanksgiving one year. Either you can't afford it, the plane flight, or your work schedule has you stuck. And so your family is gathering for Thanksgiving, 
you're unable to fly home. So Thanksgiving Day comes, it's about 4 p.m. And you're sitting in your apartment alone. Lonely, sad, and then there's a knock on the door. And you open your door, and there is your entire family standing there with a Thanksgiving meal in hand. They surprised you. They all bought flights to come to you. And that night, you enjoy this amazing Thanksgiving meal with your family. Now, can you imagine, you put yourself in that place, what you would feel? Can you imagine not opening the door? Jesus knocks. He knocks on the door of your heart. And he says, I want to eat with you. The king of the universe, the creator of all things, knocks on the door of your heart and says, I want to eat with you because I love you and I want fellowship with you. That's spiritual wealth. When you open the door and you say, yes, Jesus, and I will find all of my security and all of my trust in you because you alone can fill. What does Jesus want you to see? He wants you to see the the poverty, the poverty behind the, the wealth, the success, the prosperity, all these things that serve as masks. He wants you to see the deep poverty. Second, he wants you to see spiritual wealth that's found in him, in a, in a relationship with him. And then third, he wants you to see new creation. New creation. Notice how Jesus opens and closes this letter. He opens with a description about himself. Look what he says. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is Colossians 1 language where it says, describing Jesus, that he's the firstborn from the dead and the firstborn over all creation. Meaning that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he was the firstborn from the dead, that he ushered in this new creation, this new kingdom, this new world. And then look at how Jesus closes the letter. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And what he's saying there is when when I come back to fully bring this new creation into being that I have inaugurated with my resurrection, this new world where there will be no more pain and death and corruption, right? Those are things of the old world that you see with your physical eye. Jesus says, I I have brought new creation and I'm bringing it once and for all. And when I do, guess what? You who have trusted and put your core trust in me are gonna rule with me over this creation. And until then, I've made you stewards over this new creation. Try to tie this together. So Jesus says, I want you to be cold or hot, right? Remember the hot waters uh, had a a medicinal effect, cold waters, life-giving. I want you to be that. I don't want you to be lukewarm. And what Jesus is saying is if you live your life by only what your physical eyes see, that by default you will be lukewarm. Because if you're living by what only your physical eyes see, then you're, you're living your life for an an old world that's on its way out, that's full of sin and corruption and death and decay. Jesus says, 
I want you to get your eyes of faith on the new creation that I ushered in when I rose from the dead and that I'm bringing in full when I return. And you're gonna be with me. You're with me now, reigning over this new creation, and, and you're gonna be with me for eternity. And so get your eyes of faith on the new creation. I'll close with the quote I opened with. I, I like it. It's the Wayne Gretzky quote, that Hall of Fame hockey player, when he said, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it's been. If the world is the puck, then what Jesus is saying is that the world is on its way to renewal, to a brand new creation. And so he's asking you, he's asking us to align our lives with that reality of what is coming, what has come and what is coming. That the trajectory of our lives would be aligned with that new creation that is centered on Jesus. Let's pray.